Postcards from a Dying World, the podcast. For more than a decade, I've reviewed over 1,000 books that are mostly science fiction, horror, and bizarro. This feed will feature bonus audio I have produced over the years, as well as a monthly digest of reviews based on what I've read each month, plus the occasional bonus material about my own fiction. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to Postcards from a Dying World. We have a special returning guest for his second round on this show. Uh, We will be mostly talking about his new Del Rey novel, Goblin. It is a novel in six novellas. But before we get to that, we're we're just going to catch up with Josh and some of the things that he's been doing that he can talk about. One of the most exciting things is that uh, you produced a movie since the last time we talked, and I don't even think it had started. Um, maybe you guys were in pre-production. I knew, I know we talked about that, but you made a movie, so uh, tell the folks about the movie you made. Hi, everyone. I'm Josh, and I, and I have a production company with my manager, Ryan Lewis. Um, Ryan and I have been working together for 13 years in a manager, you know, author way. And after Bird Box, Ryan was like, we ought to start our own production company so we can be involved on the producing side of your novels and projects going forward. And then that led to, maybe we should also be looking at other people's books. And that led to getting Max Booth's uh, We Need to Do Something, amongst others. We're working with Jonathan Jans, who is like incredible. I don't know if you've spoken with him mm-hmm. yet. but I have not it. spoken to him, but he's from Indiana, I believe. So yeah. So we're, we got the Hoosier thing in common. Yeah, he's great. I mean, everyone that Ryan Ryan manages and works with is great. But so Ryan kind of pulled off a coup with we need to do something because Max had written the script and Ryan sent it to Sean O'Grady, to Atlas. The company's called Atlas. Sent it to Atlas with the intention of Atlas getting on board to produce and help find financing, right? This right. was in June of 2020. So we're in the middle, we're in the thick of everything, right? the pandemic wise. And Sean at Atlas says, you know, rather than finding financing or in in addition to, I'd like to direct this script. And Ryan, this was in our first meeting with them and the first people we sent it to. And so Ryan's like, well, shoot, I don't know what to say because if we say yes, and then, you know, this sits in their hands and sits around for a while, it could be like years and we haven't shown anyone else like, like, do we want to say yes to the first person? So Ryan was like, okay. And he put in the contract, so long as you f- shoot the movie this year, which I had never seen <laughs> in a contract or anyone even ever, you know, suggest that that makes it in a contract. In other words, we'll give you the rights, but you got to go, right? Yep, exactly. And afterwards I was like, Ryan, that was a, that was a really interesting thing that you did, you know? And he was like, well, they said they wanted to make it right away. So let's put that on paper. I'm like, okay, okay. So they did. They filmed it in October. Um, it was all super fast tracked. And by 20 or June 2021, 20, we were at the premiere in uh, at Tribeca. I mean, literally, we had shopped it to those guys like June 15th of 2020. And it was premiering like June 18th of 2021. Part of that, obviously, is Sean and Atlas like absolutely going for it. And another part of it is, I think that Ryan put in the contract, you have to absolutely go for it if you say you're going to. So that was incredible. The weird part for me was that that, um, because Atlas is in Michigan, they're in Southfield, which is less than three miles from where I live. On the first floor of the building that they work in 
is a soundstage, sound studio, like with, with unbelievable like cameras and lights and just, dude, it's amazing. You would, you just go in there and you feel like you literally could make anything here. It's the greatest feeling. That's where they shot the movie. So this movie was shot less than three miles from my house. Max came into town for it. Obviously all the cast did, but it was like the strictest quarantine. I mean, this is the height of the pandemic that mm -hmm. I wasn't even allowed on set. Nobody was. And I live three miles away. I'm a producer <laughs> on it. I'm friends with everyone involved. And I, I wasn't on set at all. I didn't, I was, I never went inside. Um, in fact, the only time I ever took the COVID test was outside the building because Max and I had hung out the night before and they wanted to make sure that whoever he hung out with didn't test positive so that he could come back on set. Mm -hmm. So Max and I had an amazing time. They made the movie and I was there at the at the rap party, which was incredible. <laughs> well, what's really cool for me and, and one thing that I really respect you guys for doing is that coming off the success of Bird Box, it would make sense to to really jump in and make maybe one of your short stories or or do one of one of your works. But to go out and support another artist and another writer and to get that made is is really is a really cool thing. It's that kind of, you know, giving back to the community. I think that's, that's the really cool part about it. But what about this story really um, saying to you guys, like what, what was it about Max's story that made you really want to make this? I mean, honestly, for me, it was the dialogue. And I don't know if you've read the book or not. Have you? No, I've read The Night Manager, which was great. But Okay, um, I, you know, I haven't read that one. I need to, but for me, it was the dialogue. So it's a one- you know, one set story, you know. The nightly takes... disease, I'm sorry, I said the name wrong. Oh yeah, 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 the nightly yeah. It, um, it takes place all in a bathroom. And I, and I get, like, I'm just a fan of, of the one set story in general. I've written a few books that don't take place in much more than one setting. Even Bird Box is just a house and a river, house and a river. It's really just two settings, really. And I've been, I'm always a fan of that, that almost theatrical, like it could be a play. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf is my, is really like maybe my all-time favorite movie and, and the best example of this thing that I've ever found. Mm -hmm. So to have, to, for Max to send a script that's, that moves, that, that uh, builds, that is fun and funny and scary and all this, but all in one bathroom, well, that pretty much relied on the dialogue, you know, and what they're saying to each other and what they're beginning to be bothered about with each other and all these sorts of, what they're revealing. So that, for me, that's what the book side was like, holy cow, yeah, this is really great. And Ryan uh, agrees with all that, but also the actual screenwriting itself. Max is really great, uh, is a really great screenwriter. And so, yeah, it was like, and, you know, I think that part of the reason Sean was so willing to move on it so fast was that a one set movie is COVID friendly. Because mm -hmm. once you quarantine that one set and you don't have to move anywhere else, or involve any other like, uh, you know, there's only four actors in the whole movie or five, I guess, five actors in the whole movie. So once that's like established, you don't have to worry about extras and testing and this and that and, and, and testing beyond what you have. And so I think that was appealing to Sean as well. Yeah, well, and, and uh, it, for example, these, these types of set movies that have this kind of setting for years, Hitchcock said that he wanted to make a movie in a phone booth, right? And that was yeah. like one of his goals. And one of the funny things is when Larry Cohen wrote Phone Booth, that famously Steven Spielberg said to him, you know, hey, Hitchcock would have made this. He was like looking for this, right? 
And so if you have one of these like closed room, small stories and you've got the right one that's propulsive and tells the story, it's, it's really special. Yeah, I can't wait to see it. And so you guys uh, premiered it at Tribeca. That, that's, that's, that must have been a fun, surreal experience, especially that was your first time uh, going out in public. Yeah, uh, there were two first things that, that literally was, I think Allison and I had gone up north, kind of where you said you were near Traverse City. Traverse City, we had gone up there like a week before or something. But the whole time that we're getting prepared to go to New York, I kind of just kept saying to myself like, hey, this is really, um, because I was a little nervous about traveling and everything. And I, not, not, not even COVID related, just in general flying and everything, I was a little nervous. And I was like, hey man, listen, this is a good thing that you're going anywhere right now. Like just leave it in the house. This is good for you and Allison. And it wasn't until we landed in New York that I was like, we didn't just go anywhere. We're, we went to New York City, oh boy, wow. And it was like a gazillion people and so vibrant and so alive. And it was like, holy cow, we've been in our house for a year and a half. So. That was the one first, you know, hadn't been out of the house in a while. The second one was I've never worn like a producer hat at an event. You know, I've never, right, this right. was the first movie we ever produced. And so there was a moment at the uh, dinner sort of party before the movie where Vanessa Shaw, who is one of the stars, introduced me to her friends as this is the producer, Josh Mallerman. And I, and it was this weird moment I had because I'm used to, this is the author uh, or this right, is the right. high strung or this is my friend, whatever it is. I've never been introduced before as this is the producer, Josh Mallerman. And it was almost this like identity moment that I had where as I'm like shaking <laughs> right. my friend's hand, I'm having this identity like fissure inside, like who am I, you know? And later on, I brought that up to Ryan and I was like, did you experience something like this? And he said, yeah. He said, it almost felt like we were um, wedding guests, or I'm sorry, we were in the wedding party for right. a destination wedding that was for people that we had never met before. Cause like here we were like, like, we had never from COVID, none of us had been on set. None of us had like hung out together, all this, but we'd been working together and we never done these roles before being producers or in the wedding party, whatever it might be. And it was this totally foreign, like, oh my God. Meanwhile, Ryan and I were great. We, we drank without getting uh, uh, out of control. We talked to people all night without talking people's faces off. I thought we did like an excellent job. Yeah, and it was just exciting for, you know, anytime an author who's not Stephen King, right, from from our community gets a movie made, it's it's exciting. So that yes. happened for Max and and for you guys. Yes. It's um but it, it's got to be a somewhat different experience because you do have experience with Bird Box obviously, but that in that case you're an author, but it's also your first film being made from your work, so it had to be like a really different experience, a father to a movie, but in this very different situation. But yeah, yes, a hundred percent. But I mean, at the, at the same time, it, it can all start to feel sort of like, what's the right phrase? Like all part of the same trip. Like it's all momentum. It's all, we're talking about books and movies and let's go, let's go, let's go. If that's a Jonathan Jan's script, let's roll. If it's Max, if it's Laurel Hightower, if it's mine. I think Ryan and I right now have something like 28 projects in some form of development. That sounds like a lot, but you gotta think that that goes Oh from, no, in Hollywood, you always have tons of plates spinning. Yeah, there's that goes from stuff that's set up with- Which like, one takes, you whatever. never know. Right, exactly. And then there's that goes all the way from things are set up to there's a story that we're like, we gotta find someone to write a script for this. So there's 28, I think 
16 of those are books or stories of mine and 12 are stories of like other people, Jans, Max, Laurel, um, and more, Tim Meyer, Chad Lutsky. Um, so there is like a balance there too, where, where we're having regular meetings and uh, we're working on something with Gabino. And so there is a balance of, of, of what you're saying, of, say, of your own projects and watching this and also with others, but eventually it all kind of becomes the same. It's all about the forward progress of it all. Right. Yeah, no, it's really exciting stuff. And first of all, it's just a really smart move for, for, for you and Ryan to do like capitalizing off the success of Bird Box, which of course was amazing. Then of course you, do, you pull, pull off the trick of, of making a sequel that I personally liked as much, if not more, but people can go back to episode 14 to listen to uh, uh, Josh and I talk about Mallory, which um, I absolutely love. But you also, you had another, um, you had another book come out from Earthling, right? Like in this recently, um, or it's about to come out, right? Um, it's about to come out. It's for like, it's up for sale already, but it doesn't, it isn't sent to the to people until December, but it, it is up like for sale and the cover art and everything is there. Ghoul in the Cape. Is wow. this one of the original 14 or? No, or no, no, no. I mean, you know, it's hard to even say what's what in some ways, right? Because just as a side note, I mean, the, the rough draft for Bird Box was written in 06, but after HarperCollins bought the book, I rewrote that thing from scratch. So if a tree falls in the woods, right? It's like, what did they buy? Which version? I mean, like, <laughs> like what did you read? Did you read the, all the ideas of a guy from 06 or were you reading the writing of a guy from 2014, right? So yeah. I did that I mean? with uh, Punk Rock Ghost Story. I complete once Dead Eye was ready to to publish it. I had written a version seven years earlier, and then I just started from page zero and yeah, and did the whole and thing. So you yeah. know, it, it's in in some ways the earlier stuff almost becomes um like extraordinary outlines. Yeah, 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 yeah. and and for me it was like a completely it was the exact same structure, but it just was a totally different story because I was just. I had grown as a, an artist and I knew I could do better. And I'm sure that's what you were feeling. So, so this, this one co the, um, coming from Earthling, it's ghoul in the Cape, right? Mm -hmm. right. Okay. Yeah. And so I've seen some of the early reviews for it. I'm re really looking forward to it. Um, can you just give us a little tease on that one? Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I'd like to, just because I feel like some listeners might relate to process. So, you know, a book like, I'm Mary Carol, I exploded through. It was like 5,000 words a day. Bird Box, they, I'm talking rough drafts. Bird Box was like 4,000 words a day. But when Google came, came along, I understood that this was gonna be a marathon. And, and so it might sound counterintuitive to do less work per day on a longer book. But imagine if you had done like 5,000 words a day, you'd be out of gas by 80,000, 90,000, something like that. So I scaled that one back and did like 1,000 a day, something like that but for almost an entire year, like 300 days, 10 months or something. And it was a real bizarrely for me, steady experience where I would just come in, I would work on that book for like an hour and a half, that kind of thing, but every day. And the rewrite was whew, daunting, man, to make it like 500 pages and then you still got like 600 to go, that kind of thing. I mean, it was intense, but- um, the this, story is, this is your long epic one. This is. <laughs> This, this is your crazy long epic one, right? Yep, this, this is Anything Goes in this one. Um, it's essentially about to, um, I mean, I don't want to reveal too much, but at first you imagine that there are two homeless eccentrics 
or at least two really bizarre eccentrics who are fleeing what they believe to be like a celestial object that's like approaching approaching earth and to like uh, swallow and, and to not really swallow, but to change like humanity, to sort of brainwash humanity. And if that sounds like a really crazy premise, it is. And and it really turns into, um, I mean, God, I don't want to reveal anything because but there's so many well, things. Well, don't, you don't have to. Like, yeah, that that's- You sold me already, but- That would be the straightest gist of it, yeah. Yeah, well, that's exciting. And wow, that, that's gonna be a big thick one. Uh, um, any plans beyond special edition for that one yet or-, or You know, I always, I always like, no, not yet, but obviously like it'd be amazing if one day it comes out wider, but, but no, not now. Not yet, okay. All right, well, that Earthling makes really great books. So it's definitely uh, one to, uh, to invest in. Well, let me, let me talk about Paul Miller at Earthling for one second. So <clears throat> I got a letter from him like a year ago or whatever it is now saying, hey, I'm going on a vacation. Have you written anything like longer, like something that I could, you know, that'll last me through uh, 10 days or something, you know? And I was like, well, yeah, I wrote this this behemoth 1,100-page book called Google in the Cape, but it was, it's a rough draft or whatever. And he's like, can I read that? And I was like, what, really? I mean, I haven't, okay. And so I sent it to him. And he was like writing me from vacation, like, hey, I'm this far in, I'm this far in, and just getting more and more excited and more and more interested. And we were like discussing things. And by the time he came back, he was like, can I put this out? And I was like, oh my gosh. So I really, Goon the Cape is special to me because it's a per or the fact that it's coming out because it's a perfect example of why not just ask Paul Miller sitting there. He's like, you know, what, what if my, what if Josh, a writer friend, a writer he admires and has put out worked with before, well, why don't I just ask him if he's got something big that I can read? And, I, and then, and then <laughs> my end, instead right. of being like, oh, it's just a rough draft. No, I'm like, yeah, why not let him read it? And so yeah. now here we are putting the book out. So the, 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 the process is a really underscores the whole, why not? do things in this industry. And Paul's been amazing. There's, the illustrations are amazing, um, which I, God, I wish I could, oh, Paul actually said that we can post those soon. And the, and the book, just to tell you how insane the book is, um, some orders, early orders come with a shot glass. <laughs> wow, okay. Just to make sure, yeah. Okay, yeah. It's a, well, it sounds like it's gonna be an experience and one that, but people can pre-order it now. It's, yep, it's at, Earthlings, at Earthlings uh, website. Okay. I think it's earthlingpublications.com or, or Earthling Pub, I'm not sure, but you'll find it. If you put in Google in the Cape, Earthling, it'll, it'll come right up. Yeah, yeah, very much looking forward to that one. So Goblin um, is one that originally came out from Earthling. So, so this, this, this began life with Paul too. And what's really neat about this book, and we'll get more into all of it, but in a lot of ways, you know, look, we're in the post-Stephen King generation. In our, in our generation of writers, we grew it's impossible to imagine growing up without Stephen King as being kind of a guidepost towards like what it means to be a horror writer. And in a lot of ways, every writer has their own kind of castle rock right they have their own like town that they kind of invent in their head in a certain way goblin reminds me more of charles grant's ox run station novels from the 70s and 80s i'm not even sure if you've read those but it was his kind of like gothic town right 
it's not just that Castle Rock is the only place that exists like this. Dunwich from Lovecraft going back, you know, like, like right, horror writers having their own gothic town is an awesome trope. It's one I like. So, so, so the idea of you doing your own city like or town like this was really exciting to me was that the idea in inventing goblin or did it happen organically well i mean i guess it happened organically but obviously i'm aware of the things you're saying also right so i mean god it's even like you could even argue that the twilight zone is rod serling's castle rock even though it's a roving place it's not a singular place um and so but with goblin i think the um it's really it's almost embarrassing to say that in the earliest, earliest draft, I was calling the city Rolling Hills, Rolling Hills, Michigan. And I'm like, okay, so in Rolling Hills, Michigan, this happens, this happens, you know. <laughs> and then I was like driving uh, out of my, out of my street one day and I passed by like a subdivision that said Rolling Hills or something. And I was like, oh no, wait a minute. This isn't, this isn't even like a subdivision. This is like a street name or something. Like, come on, we need to work on this. And I was talking to a friend who, um, just sort of randomly use the word goblin in a sentence. I, I should be able to remember how or why, but I don't. She just used that word and I like, I just lit up. I was like, that's it. That's the name of the town. It's goblin. Oh my God, that's so much better than rolling hills. And I quickly got rid of and changed everything. I wasn't that far into it, but, but once I had <laughs> the name, it sounds a little superficial, but once I had the name goblin, I started to have an understanding of the character of the city. And, what, and the, what's more important is is that once I had the character, the city goblin, I understood that I had the main that that main character would be present in every story, no matter which gobliner we were focusing on. So mm-hmm. it became in the books even called goblin. So it's really the main character. There's no question to me is the city. And so right. once once I in my for for my satisfaction nailed goblin. It was this super liberating feeling of now anything can happen in this city and Goblin herself is still present. Well, listen, and I'm not, you're a musician, so you understand the the importance of a power chord, right? You know, Rudy Rutger is a science fiction writer who always talks about the power chords of certain genres. And I think the, the Gothic town power chord is one that we want to see every writer play their their version of that power chord right and and to see like what embellishments they put on when they put the second guitar track on or whatever and listen like i'm a huge fan of those charles grant ox run station novels and and i like when stephen king returns to to castle rock or to Derry, right we have those places and i think what you've done with this book is that you've given goblin its own sense or its own feel and its own character and i'm wondering what you feel as a midwesterner you know i i grew up south of you in indiana but i've spent time in michigan i'm wondering what is uniquely michigan about goblin to you wow yeah, uh, yeah I, i'm I sorry if i if, if that's no, deep because you but. couldn't you couldn't say it's the rain because that's more pacific northwest and you you could argue the sensibilities of someone like walter camp who there's a, like an inherent kindness to him, even as he's like, oh, you know, not that everyone in the Midwest is some like kind rube or something where we're obviously we're all, it's a global world these days, but, right. but you know what I mean? We're not like, like, like the munchkin land over here, but, but still it's like, 
there, I would say Walter Camp sort of exemplifies the like Midwesterner best of all, or maybe Wayne Sherman, the two of them. Wayne is the guy who runs the hedges, as you remember. Yeah. And there's a real salt of the earthness to him um, and a crazy work ethic to him. I mean, like borderline insane. Yeah. And uh, uh, Walter as well. But Walter to me is the ultimate gobliner because mm -hmm. he, and this isn't entirely answering your question and I may, may need to think about that one more. But he's, <laughs> the okay. ultimate, he's the ultimate gobliner because he's equal parts um, uh, like ruined by the city and enamored with the city. He's the he's like he knows everything there is to know about. He's the historian. He's but at the same time he's completely wrecked and burdened by by existing there, and and he would never want to live anywhere else. Yeah. And, and there's some sort of like Stockholm syndrome to gobliners, whereas Neil Nash, the hunter is he, he, I almost see him and Walter as like two sides of the same coin. They're both so affected by goblin, meaning they're so like twisted up that they don't even realize they're the same exact thing. Whereas Walter is cowering from the spirit of goblin. Neil is like brashly going after it, meaning he's gonna try to break the one goblin rule, like nabbing an owl. And now that I'm talking more about each of these guys, I am thinking like, well, what's Midwest? Nash is a hunter. Uh, Walter, it, as I was saying before, the mannerism sensibilities of Walter Camp, the work ethic of Wayne Sherman. So I almost feel like the gobliners are more Midwest than goblin itself is. Right, and right. And it makes sense, me, the author, I also am. Right, right. Well, and that's, okay, we'll, we'll eventually give a spoiler warning and get into more details of process, because you know I like to nerd out on that. As far as you know, so much of this book is vibe in all caps, right? It's, it's, um, and you kind of already answered this with like the city being the character, but um, in order to, these are very different stories in a lot of ways. And some like the uh, camp story is more tr traditional horror. The Hedges is, is, is a very, and I say this as a compliment, these are very traditional horror stories, these two. And some of the other ones are not as much. You got stuff about magic. You got stuff about you know, the hunter and the zoo and all that. So you have these things that, that give a different feel. But all in all, like you must have been thinking from the beginning, each of these stories is different. But how do I make sure that I, I keep the vibe consistent? That had to be part of the mission statement from the beginning, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, yeah, for sure. The one of, one of the ways, and, and this was something that I didn't entirely track until later on, is that, again, it's through the city itself, but watch. So in the first story, you, oh, the very, in the prologue, you are have a guy actually driving towards Goblin, right? So now mm -hmm. we're on our way. In the first story, Richard and Charles, introduce us to Goblin. There's the Milky Way as they're walking through town as kids. There's the Milky Way, there's Goblin Games, there's um, the Woodruff Hotel. So we're starting to get a landscape as these two characters are experiencing it. And then in Walter's story, the second big story, we get the history of the town. Mm -hmm. And in Nash's story, we get the history of the hunting and the owls and the prized possession. So in other words, I think the vibe ultimately comes from, like you're gradually getting to know Goblin from driving towards it to entering and discovering it for the first time through those first three or four stories. And it's the, the first story where it's not about 
goblin or history or whatever it's like now we're up to speed and we know the city is presto and pete wanting the tickets to go see roman emperor is the first time because now we have roman emperor is a visitor to goblin mm-hmm. he's he's from out of town and he's coming to goblin and it's almost like even the bizarre or strange personalities are drawn or will end up in goblin eventually romans on tour and this is just one of his stops so I think and that, that gives you an, comes from- that gives the reader another outside view of Goblin right. to, to yeah yeah and and we're very close to getting into process because it's very hard for me not to just jump <laughs> I, I love love talking process but um in one of the um kind of one of the the things that for me really sunk home with Goblin you you have all kinds of different stories within this narrative you like especially like the zookeeper story was the one that was most powerful to me and i i think we'll talk more about this in process but that was the one that emotionally connected with did the mind meld between reader and and author and reader for me that was the one that connected with me the most but the one that i felt like could have been a bigger and larger and more epic horror story was the hedges was yeah. the last one because yeah. it felt like that was a horror novel unto itself or it could have been did you ever at any point consider you know pulling that aside and making are are there is there ever going to be an entire novel set in goblin are we or or is this it for goblin is what I'm asking. Well, that's a great question about uh, the hedges because I, I hear you because it's more than ju- like Walter's just alone in his rooms. Neil mm-hmm. has one singular goal. Uh, the mix up at the zoo is one singular horrible, horrible event, which I have more to say about that story. And thank you for what you said about it. But the hedges has numerous things. It has the witch in the woods. It has uh, Wayne's entire relationship with his lady. It has who's gone through the hedges before the creation of this. So. I agree, if there was one of those that could be its own novel, it would have been Wayne's. But Wayne it was, is such a gobliner. I mean, he's, he's the one, he's responsible for the giant topiary statues at the town gates. He's the one responsible for so much of the idiosyncrasies or whatever makes Goblin Goblin, that to remove him and to say, if I was writing and to say, you know what, this is gonna be its own book, that just would have been madness. He, I mean, he's just, He's such gobliner. And if you notice each gobliner is obsessed with something, is obsessed with something, Neil with owls, Walter with ghosts, Wayne, uh, Pete with Roman emperor and, and uh, Dirk with freedom um, of, his, of his mind really. And Wayne with, with uh, um, what's the right word? Um, a tribute to his wife. Yeah. So honoring so, her memory. Yeah. yeah, honoring her memory. So. Yes, I noticed it. I noticed that that one could have been bigger. But at that time, I was also like, man, like five novellas deep or something. And I'm like, nope, this is this one's going to stay right here. And we're going to do our best. (laughs) So then so then the next obvious question before we get into process and spoilers, is there going to be more Goblin Michigan? Okay, so so here's the deal. So I, I have two. There's another town that I have a lot of stories take place in. It's called Samhattan, and it's it's much colder than Goblin. It's it's just kind of like a smaller industrial town in in Michigan. And Spin a Black Yarn in the book, all the stories in there take place. And in fact, I've probably spent twice as much time there as I have Goblin. 
Because mm. Goblin is like, there's such a mood to it that I can't just have like, like Bird Box wouldn't make sense there. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like other, like other characters, other stories wouldn't make sense there. So what I am considering doing is an entire just second volume. I, I, I'm hesitant to call it a return to Goblin because I picture like Walter like hugging a palm tree with his hair blowing, a return to Goblin. But something <laughs> like that, I am considering some sort of a return to Goblin with five or six more, more novellas, that kind of thing. Well, an obsession seems to be, like you said, the, the, the kind of theme of it. And so if you set other stories there, it may just be that eventually maybe you have an idea for a novel that fits right. for Goblin. And then exactly. that would make sense. It's got, and, and so I did write one, um, a book called Pest that takes place in like 1900 about a guy who, it's, kind of, it's gonna sound like an echo of Walter, but essentially he attempts to um, trap depression in his, in his apartment. It's like something in his, he doesn't believe that he's feeling low or bad. He believes that something in his apartment is making him feel this way. So he sets mm -hmm. out to capture it. And at the end of that entire book, he wrote a postcard to a friend and I saw, and I, and I just wrote, you know, um, you know, Goblin, Michigan at the end of it. Cause I, exactly what you just said. I felt like this whole book, this could have been in Goblin. And yeah. so for the same exact reason you just said, uh, um, real fast, a mix up at the zoo was I had done the other five already. And then a year later, I had the idea for Dirk Rogers. And I was like, oh, this guy has to be in here. And, and, and a mix with the zoo is special for me in a couple of ways because the whole dream sequence, the present tense, the talicized dream stuff, dreamy stuff he's going through. Mm -hmm. While writing that, I was like, man, this is going on for pages and pages and is unsettling and eerie. These like sequences of him leading the kids on that tour, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And yeah. I said to myself, I was like, I would love to do an entire novel like this, present tense, italic, eerie. And that the next book I wrote was Bird Box. Mm -hmm. And so, and the rough draft was all present tense, present tense, italicized. The entire first draft was italicized. So it was Dirk's story really opened a door for me in terms of, you know, style. Interesting. No, that's, I think that's a real good tidbit. Uh, for Bird Box fans, for sure. Um, okay, before we get into to process and the spoilers, is there anything else that you want to drop for people before um, that that might be checking out and pausing until they finish reading the book? No, no, just that if you, if you are reading Goblin now, thank you. And and I, man, I this conversation is especially also making me feel this way. I I, I am going to return to Goblin, and I don't know what, what form yet. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, you heard her here. Uh, that's promise. All right. So now if you have not read Goblin uh, and you're listening to this or watching this on YouTube, pause, save your spot and uh, and and read the damn thing and then uh, come back because Josh is we've already had a conversation about process before with Mallory. And I know he, he really can nerd out on process. So we're going to have a lot of fun for the next half an hour. <laughs> All right, so one of the first things I got to talk to you about in process, we're in spoilers now officially. Um, the wraparound was awesome. It was really good, um, creepy vibe setting, the, the special instructions, the, and what I like about it, one of my favorite things about setup and payoff in storytelling is when you set something up perfectly and then 
you go through a bunch of story and you forget about it. Yeah. So when you get the payoff, because by the time I got to back to the wraparound at the end, I had completely forgotten about the box, yeah. the instructions. And so then you, what's great about that is you have the, oh yeah, moment where, where it all comes back to you because it's, it's paid off. You know, uh, Shane Black is really good at the setoffs and payoffs as a, as a screenwriter. Um, and what I really liked about this was this idea that the instructions were so uh, meticulous and important. So what, what went into making the vibe of the wraparound and what was the, was the wraparound written pre the novellas or was that the final piece? Nope. The, the, it was, those were in order, but except for Dirk. Derek mm-hmm. was was the later added, but those were in order. So it opened with the it, literally the first thing I was writing was, "Hey, I got a I got a job for you, you know, Jerry mm-hmm. up, up north or whatever." Tom, well, I can't remember Tom or Jerry, which that was intentional. I'm like, I don't know why. Maybe those set set some set some sort of cartoonish elastic vibe by naming those two guys Tom and Jerry. Right. Um, so yeah, that was in order. Meaning when I finished the hedges, then I went and finished the wraparound. Um, Mm-hmm. That'd be amazing. That'd be terrible if I forgot about it and never came back. But I, have, <laughs> I even have a, a writing crate in my office now with Dean Crawford's address on it. You know, mm-hmm. just like as if that was shipped, you know, that like, as if that was the crate that was shipped and it's got everything I've ever written pretty much. But um, oh, really the awesome. idea was kind of like I told you, it was I wanted to drive to the city. I wanted to like, like approach. I wanted the city to be coming at me as a reader and so i was like okay i need a way to get to this place and so i'm gonna have somebody have a job he's gonna deliver something there and that's what that's what started that well and then the instructions just create the the super like what the fuck is this place why is it you know and it's just a perfect setup for um it's a perfect setup for and that's the thing is a lot of these places that we have in fiction dunwich castle rock oxford station they don't have that kind of introduction because it's an afterthought because these writers just write individual short stories and they come up. So it's cool that Goblin gets this neat introduction and, and I think it adds a little special flavor to it. So Thank I appreciate you. that. Thank you. Um, I, you know, what, what's his name? Um, God, which is Tom the driver? I can't remember right now which one's yeah. Tom's driver. <laughs> and so I think, and this is a total spoiler for anyone listening. Well, we're in that, spoilers, so let it, yeah, let it fly. In spoilers is that um, Dean and Neil are such hunters that I think what happened here was that Dean ordered or, or, or somehow had someone capture or ordered like darkness, really, is, is really what happened. It's like, what's in the crate is like, because Goblin's mostly the course of one night. If you, if you, if you notice, it's like everything's going wrong this night, right? And so in Goblin, which by the way, leaves so much room for another book, because if this is one night, what happens the next night? But yeah or any night. So I like that idea that whereas Neil Nash is such a centerpiece, Dean Crawford actually gets his, not screen time, but his almost bandwidth. Because in a sense, he's the one that brought this here tonight. He ordered this here tonight, delivered to Goblin tonight, that kind of Mm. thing. And so so I think Dean plays a bigger role than one might realize or something like that. Right. Now the choice of rainfall and like, having goblin be and um i've lived in the opposite we lived in one year um in port angeles washington and there was a town right next to it named squim which even though 
Squim is in Washington. It's in this rain shadow because of the mountains that the rain like literally goes around it. And so I, I loved the idea that there was this city that just for whatever reason gets dumped on <laughs> and yeah. just gets this rainfall. Um, was it more the idea that that night's getting a particular lot or it's if goblin always gets rain it's just oh i mean as you said one way to look at that is dumped on another way is some sort of a you know magical atmosphere right and another yeah. and, and, and i think someone in there says it's the it's the tears from the original the oh 60 the original 60 that nash you know would mm -hmm. give the right right leg to be a part of um so yeah for me it was more like why does it have to be like one stormy night? Why can't it just be one stormy place, you know? Right. And, and yeah. So that that was really the the meat behind that. Of the first couple stories, uh, camp was the one that was really strong for me. They all worked, but but camp, um, I really really dug. And part of the reason why is that whole power cord thing, like that to have a story about a character who's so that's so fearful that is kind of driven by fear is kind of just makes him the ultimate horror protagonist because he's so terrified of everything that I feel like this is a really neat way to play with horror tropes. So can you tell me about where camp came from? He was a lightning bolt for me, man. He's, he's one of, along with Mallory, he's one of my, I don't want to say favorite characters, but one that I just feel really like close to. He even, I almost feel like an echo of him in Ron Handy in Mallory. Remember the guy in the gas station that she visits with before right. checking out? Yeah. Yeah, the, I feel the like old a, friend, yeah. Yeah, there's sort of a, it's almost like that could be Walter or a relative or something of Walter's. Um, you know, it, it's exactly what you said. There's this ultimate horror-ness to him. He's scared of being scared to death. He's not, he's not scared of the actual ghost itself he's not scared of like an accident or this or that he's scared of being scared to death and and that i mean you can't get more mountaintop you know afraid than that so mm -hmm. he was a bit of a lightning bolt but i think the thing that balanced him for me was that he was this this knowledge this intelligence this um this uh what do you call it relationship he has with goblin itself like he is the town historian. Nobody knows more about Goblin than Walter Camp. So to couple that, the you know the smartest, strongest sense of the city, couple that with the meekest, most afraid. At that point, I was like, oh man, I really got this. And I was a little nervous about his story being so early because not not a lot happens in his story, you know. Whereas Nash's a lot does, Dirks and so forth. But I was just kind of like, you know what? I think we need him to establish this thing, this relationship with the city and to give the readers history of the city. Well, not a lot happens in that story, but what really gets established in that story and what makes the story work for me is that it's, it, it underlines the vibe with the all caps vibe of the story. And it gives yeah. you, um, it anchors the, the novel in, that those horror power chords you know what i'm saying yeah. so so i think that camp in that way that's what made it so strong for me early on um but okay the next one that i, I really want to talk about is presto so so um are you a big magic guy or is this something you had to research or because um and we we already talked a little bit about 
how Roman Emperor or Roman Roman Emperor Roman he that character and being this famous musician or um, magician coming to town on tour gives us a different view of the city of the town. But why specifically does magic present a window into Goblin? Because I think that's important. Well, I think it comes back to that even, you know, so the Gobliners are eccentric and, and obsessed and that kind of thing. But so are the people who end up coming to Goblin. So Pete is obsessed with Roman Emperor, but Roman is obsessed with magic. And so obsessed, yeah. he, as you know, goes, goes too far with it. So I think that's where he fit in perfectly to me, is that he could have been a Gobliner. And in fact, we've been working on a... Um, a TV pitch for it because, you know, wow, how exciting to be in the, the writing room for Goblin, by the way, you know, that would be yeah. a fun, fun place to be a new episode every, you know, new Gobliner all the time. But there's been talk about maybe Roman should be from Goblin because he's such, he fits like the persona, the character so well. Obviously, you know, I, I, not to pitch you, but what I could see on that is that Roman could easily be a character that people don't realize is from Goblin, right? Sure. Yeah. Right. yeah no, that yeah, he escaped yeah. because a lot of people don't get yeah. out of these little towns. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, and these, you know, a lot of them don't even want to like, but Roman would be like, so it'd be sort of a, I don't know if triumphant is the right word, but a return, a return to Goblin. Or, um, or, or a secret, you know, that he, yeah. that, that he kept hidden. Yeah. And, and I think it makes sense because the, I, the idea is with the story is, is that, you know, his obsessions and his fans' obsession, like when he comes to the town, kind of end up together. Well, here's, I'll tell you a bigger inspiration for me than magic is, is like, uh, think of Roman as like a, a horror, like paperback writer. And then like, think of you and me as Pete, you know, because right. it's a somewhat like niche, like sort of like, you know, uh, obsession of ours to find like the best like horror paperbacks from the eighties and this and that, you know, and like the right. mag magic magazines are kind of that to Pete, you know? And so right. Roman emperor coming to town is sort of like, you know, like a horror, uh, an eighties paperback horror author arriving and we're like going to see him or her in person. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think it was more like Pete's interest in that sort of bizarre, awesome, brilliant, colorful thing than it, than it was like, oh, this book needs magic. Right. Well, okay. Well, yeah. And, and I see, you know, Pete as a, as a character um, was really relatable, right? Because um, when th these little kids that, he's a, a lot like um, Mark in Salem's Lot, who's the kid yeah. who, who, yep. who uh, has all the monster magazines and is more equipped <laughs> to, to deal with, what comes to Salem's lot than, than the rest of the population, uh, partially because, you know, he had the, these obsessions with, with, with magic and these kinds of things. So, yeah, I thought, you know, Presto was a, was a really, you know, was a, a really strong novella and, and look, I, the vegan in me, like, and I know the role that the Hunter story plays in the book and, and how important it is as far as like driving, um, the, the the ultimate narrative forward and i i do have an interesting thing with i also read that story after playing basketball and i was very tired so i think yeah i'm a big i'm a big hooper so yeah i played too 
Oh, awesome. Well, you, you like- well, if we could get Stephen Graham Jones a new knee, we should, we, yeah. we, we could all play 21. Oh um, man. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't, that's a great thing to discover. Awesome. Cool. <laughs> well, um, actually if that Stephen Graham Jones episode, we ended up like nerding out on basketball for a really long time. And I don't know if anyone didn't fast forward through it. Um, oh, I, I'm going to find that now. I, um, I'm the next novel for Del Rey of mine features a basketball team. Oh, awesome. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I was, very tired from hooping when I when I read that story. Um, so I read it on a Wednesday night, and I just gotten Wednesday nights is my basketball run that one of the runs that I play with with some friends. And I came back and I read that very tired, and so uh, I did a disservice to that story, <laughs> that story by reading it when I was so tired. And so I wonder if that, a lot of it's out of my head for that reason. Well, I knew I knew the importance though with that story for building to to the wraparound. And what's funny is, is that I had the feeling when I was reading this, I was like, because I, that thing of where you forget, you know, yeah. right? And I was like, God, this is more important than I'm realizing. And I had a moment where I was reading and I was like, this is more important than I'm realizing. And I might have to come back to the story is one of the thoughts that I had. So what's what's the the owl and 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 the 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 capturing of darkness and of the city that's really what that story is about right yeah and and also again i think that because these were written in order except for dirk um Mm -hmm. i think that neil nash was my own in the same way that punk follows disco and that kind of thing i think neil nash was my reaction to camp meaning camp was understated and one setting and like one character like losing his mind and then it was like you know what let's go over the top Let's paint the walls red. Let's go absolutely nuts. Let's have a meat cake. Hundreds of gobliners at this lunatic over the top hunter's birthday party. And I feel like he was my way of telling the reader, not everything's going to be understated in this, in Goblin also. And that- There's rich people there too. And Well, yeah, yeah. and that's, yeah, Neil, Neil asshole Nash. Yeah, I'm a vegetarian and mm-hmm. Allison is a vegan. And so that story and a mix up at the zoo are both a little like, ooh, wow. Like that's, you know, there's some stuff in there. Yeah, yeah, no, and I'm going to get into that because um, there, there's definitely that the animal rights like angle to the mix up in the zoo is is one of the reasons why it connected with me, um, yeah. and and we'll definitely get into that. And it's um, I just like my natural, even though I grew up in the Midwest and whatever, just the 25 year vegan or well, I'm almost 30 years now. Um, yeah, yeah, I went, I became vegan in uh, uh, Bill Clinton's second week in office, so. Um, Dude, that is that that was a different era to be vegan back then, man. Uh, and, and I did it in Bloomington, Indiana, too. So there were no vegan oh. restaurants or right now. Yeah. There's literally now there's like we also I went to last time we went to L.A. We didn't go to just a vegan restaurant. We went to a vegan Italian restaurant. I mean, Allison's been vegan for nine years. Yeah. And I've seen in the course of those nine years, like so much growth, so many more options. I can't even imagine what you were experiencing back then. Yeah, my wife wanted to know if, if it was Brothers Meatball that that you, this is the Italian restaurant you went to, because um, she's been she's going to LA next week and uh, I don't know, I can't remember. I'll ask. Yeah, well, um, well, the yeah, it was a different world when 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 my wife and I became vegan because it, it's funny because we always joke about like how much change has happened. But like we have running jokes about that's like a '90s vegan cookie, 
um you know <laughs> because like yeah uh, yeah and we loved that stuff back then we didn't know any better but uh we didn't know we could do better and then uh things have gotten so it's, much so much better. so much dude and then we um uh what's it called alice and i are always talking about how like I mean, a, a, a vegan in like 90s felt like seeing Bigfoot. If somebody told me they were vegan, I'd be like, or, or I saw a vegan and I'm like, what, what did they look like? <laughs> <laughs> right. But, no, man, no, like, no. It was a thing back then that if you met somebody else that was vegan, you were instantly friends. And now that's not necessarily the case. There's very, there's lots of different flavors. And yeah, and, yeah, for sure. But it, it, it also is. I don't know. It's just a nice feeling to see it grow as it has. Um, oh yeah, it believe like me. It's only growing more so. So yeah. I'm not vegan, uh, maybe yet, but I have been veggie for six years. Well, that's great. Well, we don't want to get to totally sidetracked because we're, we're yeah, talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. As much as it's fun for me. Um, so let's get into to mix up at the zoo because this was clearly my favorite story in the book. And 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 Josh, I'm not just saying this to, to puff you up, but uh, I thought this story was incredible. This was the one that the hedges was the one that I thought most people would connect to and the one that most people would like. But for me, the the power of the storytelling that was going on and mix up at the zoo with Dirk and with what you had here was, and what I like is that I love all storytelling to me is parallels and reversals. Everything is about parallels and reversals. <laughs> and um, what I thought was really great about this story is there's kind of three parallels going on and there's three tracks going on with characters. I like the zookeeper confronting the nature of his job and the imprisonment of, of this gorilla. But one of the things that was most important to me is that you very specifically gendered this gorilla, which doesn't seems like a little thing, but I think portraying Ula as a woman in this story is a very perfectly subversive but important aspect of this story because, as far as I'm concerned, because I'm a, I'm anti zoo, I I've had I've had to go to zoos for work as a teacher it's very painful for me to see, especially animals like gorillas. And I think the gendering of Ula and giving her more agency was a really important and subversive part of the story. Can you tell me about where this story came from? I mean, it, so it was a year later, as I told you, I had finished the five novellas and the wraparound. And I was imagining Dirk, you know, he's, he has somewhat limited intelligence right he's kind of a little he's you know <laughs> he's a bit of a knucklehead in a way but meanwhile he's also thinking of things that are far more important and and superior and meaningful than neo nash is mm -hmm. and and he's thinking of things and he's feeling ways that that i feel that we feel of of you know just like the animals in the zoo are in cages he feels like a cage in his job and we all feel like a cage in, on the planet and all this kind of thing but it was almost like um, it's similar. He's similar in a sense to Pearl in um, on this day of the pig because he's like uh, a living thing that is capable of grasping how much more and how meaningful all these elements are that you're discussing, mm -hmm. but not quite equipped with the philosophical know how to pick that apart 
And so he ends up sort of becoming like the ultimate goblin casualty. Well, actually, Eula does. But he becomes like the ultimate goblin casualty because it's like, whereas Walter's like surfing his fear, Dirk seems like he gets like caught in the machinery of it. And, and, and you know, he, he keeps telling his friend, I can't remember his friend's name right now, but he keeps telling him like, like how he wants to be his own boss and he wants to be like free and he wants to go out at night on the town. And I mean, everything he's saying, you could equate to like the animals saying the same thing. And here he's seeing a slaughterhouse and a zoo and it's like, Obviously, a slaughterhouse is worse, but in another sense, aren't we all just aren't they all just caged? And then couple that with his dream sequence, which usually dream sequences are sort of um, goofy to me, but for some reason that one worked for me, so I kept going with it. This tour that is just getting weirder and weirder, and where is he going? And by the end of it, he is seeing like someone in a gorilla suit hiding behind a rock, and it's all coming back to the freedom of himself, freedom of man and woman from their um, roles, freedom of these animals from their freaking cages. Like, this, like, I'm with you on everything you're talking about, by the way. And yeah, Dirk's story is a lot more, a lot heavier and a lot more meaningful than Neil Nash's. There's just absolutely no question about that. But I will say this, you are the first person that has pointed that one out to me in this way. And, I, and thank you for that, number one. And number, because number two, I'm oftentimes I'm reading reviews and I'm like, oh, they didn't even mention a mix up at the zoo, you know, or they didn't, right. you know, this kind of thing. And I'm like, why, why did, how did this one, you know, slip by? And then I wondered if it was because I wrote those first five together and Dirk was added. I wondered if there was something missing or, or, or something like that. But I love that story so much because the same thing that you're describing it, it's, it hits at a deeper level than either uh, Walter or Neil can hit. Well, and, and I think what's cool, too, is because Dirk wants, he wants so badly to have another job at the zoo that it sets up this idea of his empathy and, and like, well, now tonight's my opportunity. I get to give the tour. I get to do this. Yep. And I like the idea that this, this, that when he's on the tour, he can't, he can't even bring himself to to talk when he's around Ula that because and I thought yeah. that was that was really powerful because for those of us who are empathetic people who don't just look at animals as uh, commodities when you're forced in a situation like I was to go to the zoo because I'm supporting students that have to go I didn't want to go but I was there I can't tell you how many moments I had where I was just it was just painful to look at these creatures. And I also, I uh, we used to live in, near Balboa Park, near where the San Diego Zoo was. And it's oh, funny yeah. because one of the basketball courts that I used to hoop at in San Diego was like literally against the zoo. And you could like, there was a, a barrier so you couldn't see in, but every once in a while, if the wind moved it or whatever, you could see into the zoo. And sometimes you could, smell the animal cages when and so there were times where i'd be sitting there just like shooting hoops by myself and you'd hear like a sound from like like one of the gorillas or whatever and it was just depressing because you know here i am feeling free like just shooting hoops whatever and to have that moment it, it was weird and it was powerful and so so this this story connected to me you know obviously and listen if not everybody gets it that's okay yeah yeah, because, because what I think is really powerful in here is that just from a writing perspective, I think that the, the, the three track 
parallels here is is what makes it really really impressive and uh, writer to writer i just um it's not just i mean i love the ethics of it right and the message but also i think the um storytelling and how it relates to to bird box and inspiring bird box is is really neat to learn too yeah so, well anything else you want to say about mix up at the zoo yeah yeah um you know there's this um what's the right phrase for it like i almost feel like if you experience goblin if you read them all in a row which you did um it almost becomes like dirk's or the not really dirk but a mix up at the zoo is the moment where we're now we're all the way in like we've reached yeah. like like we've now you got the history of the town you got a visitor as you said with roman and pete's obsession but pete's a little kid and then the minute now we're with Dirk, it's like now we're like sinking deep. And then how much lower can we go? Not not lower, but deeper can we go than Dirk? It's Wayne's like unmitigated disastrous honoring of his, of his dead wife. And so I wouldn't say Goblin gets less fun or something, but I think it gets much more heavier and profound as the as the stories go on. Because the first story is almost like like just like an episode of like Tales from Dark Side. The yeah. um yeah you know what I mean it's like it's like goofy in a sense but I don't I don't want to say that to turn someone off but it kind of is it's like here's these two young or these two guys but we get to meet Goblin and the one guy starts is too afraid to cut off his own body parts because of someone else that's like tales from the dark side Walter starts to bring us a little bit deeper Dirk's where we're like the elevator is now going lower well especially so, the wraparound has a real and and I'm I'm a tales from the dark side fan so I grew up oh, watching yeah, yeah. it so no, me so. Too. I love the feeling of the Tales from the Dark Side kind of like goofy. And you want that kind of like sit down, let me tell you a tale kind of thing. Yep. For, yes. For a gothic horror thing. And and um, that's what makes the wraparound work. Can and I then, ask you something? Okay, go ahead. go ahead. And then you bring it home with the hedges, which we'll get to in a second. But you had a question. Did you have a question for me as a reader? Um, well, you as a writer kind of too. Like, wh what would you want to see in a return to goblin would you want to see uh six new well obviously you wouldn't want these guys stories anymore because that that'd be silly but but like would you want a singular novel there would you want six new stories would you want 10 stories would you want short stories would you want like how would you see that like spread over time anything goes well i'll tell you i'll i'll tell you what i'm thinking for since i know you're working on tv i'll tell you a little bit about what i what i want as a reader of the book, what I'd like in a TV show, and then I'll tell you what I would like in more books um, real quickly. But as far as a TV show goes, I think the anthology setup of, of it is perfect and great. And what you want to do is just make sure that if you do a season of it, that you know each time you do a season that you, you have a wraparound for those seasons that- I, I agree. Yeah, that you get, and and then what you what you what you get there is that you can tell more than, than than the six stories, right? You can expand it, but I love the idea of of a knight and goblin and like all these different corners that happen in one night. I, I love that. Um, as far as a return to it, um, I would love to see a, a, an entire novel that is built around the premise of it. Not necessarily a long novel, but maybe like, like um, a house at the bottom of the lake uh, level of, sure. 
And, and why didn't I have you on when I read that? I, I'm sorry, Josh. I, I read that last year and we didn't get to talk about that. I, I don't know what I was thinking because I should have. I love that book. Um, and, Man, but, thank you. But that kind of length of, um, of, of, a, of a goblin story, I, I would really like to see. But another thing too is, is that it's all these stories are about obsessions, a return to goblin where you see another, maybe not necessarily obsessions, but some other theme that uh, connects to the city or, you know, obviously obsession is a huge part of what, what Goblin is, but um, I feel like this city, uh, this town um, is gonna have other avenues. I, I guess I would say something similar to the obsessions is what I'd like to see. But a little different but but you know what josh whatever you do <laughs> i'm there for it so i'm gonna i'm gonna read it um uh i have um i have yet to not like a josh mallerman novel that i've read so um i Thank think you. the most poorly reviewed of your books that i had was unbury carol and i liked that book so that's that's, that's my favorite one that one in goblin i think are my two favorites but whatever yeah yeah, yeah, no, no, and I think I told you the last time. I, I think, what's funny to me is that when I say it's my, it's not my favorite. It's I really liked that book, so, you know, I have yet to be disappointed, and I'm not saying that just to puff you up or whatever. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah and and um, I, I, I'm just a straight shooter, and I'm an honest teller that, and it may have been the time when I was reading it because I like westerns. I, I'm not anti-western. Um, and I don't even remember my totally, I just remember liking it, but I want to see you do more Goblin, right? I, I would love to see you do more Goblin. And I think the profound nature of Mix Up at the Zoo is definitely the one that spoke to me the most. Um, definitely I saw the most potential in the hedges. So, so let's, let's, let's round this out with the hedges. I, as a writer, I like the narrative setup. All right, where the narrative flips from Wayne's backstory to Margot yeah. telling her story. And that gives it a real like around the campfire, the, like the scenes where Margot's in the like with the cops mm -hmm. and they're like, you know, tell us a story. And what I like about the hedges is that aspect of it kind of breaks one of the writing rules, the show don't tell, but it does it in a power chord way, right? Where you 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 want this this young girl to be telling the story, you know, this child telling this experience. No one's made it to the end of the hedges, so it's it's like a kind of a creepy thing. And then, and through her eyes and the way the story goes and the way the narrative flips back and forth was was a real neat writer trick. And you say this was a you wrote this originally before you went back to do mix up the suit, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah. It, and so but it builds really great off the because you just had a profound experience and mix up at the zoo you're feeling like some heaviness and then wayne his wife dies and that's heartbreaking if you you know for anybody who can like get their head around like god if i lost my partner it'd be this giant hole in my life and then he his obsession is to build the, these these hedges and so um, can you tell me about building that back and forth? Did you, um, 
did you have that structure from the beginning? Was that something planned or is that something that came out accidentally as you were writing? I think I um, got that rhythm from Presto in the section where uh, at 10 o'clock or at nine o'clock, Pete was pretending to be asleep at 10 o'clock or nine o'clock, sorry, Roman was in the Goblin Cemetery, like that whole back and forth of Pete mm -hmm. and Roman and then they ended up meeting at the show. And I, and I liked that. Remember, there was no mix up between them uh, at the time. I went presto and then, so then went with the hedges, I was like, oh, I kind of like that back and forth thing. I think I'm gonna do Margot Wayne, Margot Wayne, Margot Wayne, but in a slightly not such rapid way that presto did it. So I kind of, I just learned that from presto actually, or, or grabbed that from there. And it seemed to work real well because I would be able to tell Wayne's story without um, the, uh, the novella being bogged down with like talking about the past because every time we flashed to Margot with these super creepy police officers, that seemed like thrilling again. And then we go back to Wayne. And so it started to feel like, again, just like Pete and Roman meeting, uh, you know, two, two trains heading in each other's direction, Wayne and the police were starting to head in each other's direction. There's definitely a horror novella about Goblin PD. <laughs> like... yeah. Oh, so dude, I had a list of 10 originally, which included room one at the Woodruff, uh, the West Fields. It was like a woman's name in the West Fields. And I don't want to tell you what she buried out there, but so, uh, and then I, so I had this list and when I got to five, I was like, who I'm out of gas, man. I just wrote, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then a year later I had the idea for Dirk and added it, but there's still that list of other five, five more that are in that writing crate uh, in my office. Maybe I should open that, look at those again. And, and that definitely the Goblin PD were, Super creepy. And and that was some of the most powerful moments when Margot's mother is like, you know, her insistence at getting them out of there, getting her out of there. Um, what I liked about that is it gave me a feeling like, oh, there's something more to this that, that these cops were involved in. And, and there's some kind of backstory, <laughs> backstory there that, and I like when a writer can suggest something like that, that has my writer brain going, Cause I like, yeah. I like being like, Oh, I wonder what's going on there. Yeah. Me too. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because I, I, you know, sometimes those end up becoming your own novels and stories later where you're like, boy, that writer never went there. And I would like to see that. So now I gotta, I gotta make it my own, but create my own setting. And yeah, I love that kind of thing. I read, um, I think it was called the American supernatural tale or some collection. And with each story, like the first time I read all this, with each story, I was like, oh, I think it's going here, but it didn't. So then I would write that down. Now that's mine. Right, like this, right. Getting, you know, so, but you, or you would have like two sentences that a character says to another and you're like, ooh, that's a good idea. I'm gonna write this down. And you start what? to like have like a list of ideas. Well, it's, there's the famous thing of like where Richard Matheson was watching a, um, Dracula and said, well, if one of these guys is so scary, what if, what if I flipped it and there was only one person, right? Yeah. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I am legend was born. Can happen that way. Um, yeah. And so with the hedges, I just, I thought it was a really great, just horror cap. And we did already talk about how it could have been built out. So I don't want to shortchange the hedges because I do think that it's, it's a really, it's a powerful one, but it's, a, it's a, it, it doesn't, back and forth of, of the narrative is one of the is the thing that's that's the most interesting process thing going on there and and uh but and also the characters i think um 
Wayne obviously like in his grief drives so much of that. And, uh, and also one of the power tropes there is, is the hedge mazes is something that we've seen in horror before, you know, but this tribute aspect and having it be like a thing that, that, you know, he made this tribute to his dead wife. So what's at the end of it that none of us can seem to find and get to is a really creepy creepy idea so yeah and then there's that one moment where because after a while it starts to feel like obviously it's going to be his wife right at the end yeah and so margo says like and then it got to the end and that cop goes it was, it's his wife and then Margo right. goes, that's the dumbest thing i've ever heard right <laughs> right right and i have um i have a tendency when i'm writing every time i have to write a line of dialogue where it has to be said but I, but I, I know it's tropey. I always want to do the Shane Black thing of like having of having another character say it first and having them roll their eyes. And I'm like, I can't do that every time. <laughs> right? No, I know, I know, I know. Because it was like this one was so telegraphed, and then it's like, no, it's not that. It's no, no, true. I love that. That was a great. Yeah. That was a great yeah. moment. And I, I definitely was in my chair reading it and laughed out loud at that. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh no, it's not that <laughs> right. <laughs> And, that's like uh, a week at a reader obviously you're like <laughs> right right no no that was a, a fun moment so and then we get back to the wraparound right and we're back to our tales from the dark side and wrapping this up um that had to be a like a fun feeling like you know you've got all these stories and and you're going to tie it together like as a writer how is that moment of of oh man it was incredible it was truly incredible because I think Goblin was the, at the time, the second book I ever wrote. And so there was this sense of like, you know, you've written your first one, right? And you're like, oh, I wrote a book. And I, who knows if I'll ever do that again? You don't know until you do, right? And so when I reached the wraparound with Goblin, I was like, oh my God, I made it. I've made it to the other side of this. Like, and, and now and I'm so energized. I'll bet. And Goblin was written freehand, by the way, the original uh, draft. And I'll... um. I'll take a photo of that. I, I, should, I, should, I should post that photo or something. So there was a total sense of like, we're crossing the finish line with this right now. And it felt like that in the book too. Like now we're getting the answer. Like he's in town, he's delivering the package. We are at the finish line. Yeah, that was, that was a great feeling, man. Well, and it's interesting to me that Goblin was your second finished book because, you know, with those early novels, a lot of times writers want to try and throw everything in. And, and, and what's interesting to me is that Goblin feels like if I didn't know from having already talked to you that Goblin was early, if I hadn't already interviewed you, I would assume that this was the work of a more mature Josh Mellerman who had lots of lots of years under his belt writing and was like confident that he could tell a slow burn a, a, a you know a, and not throw all the nuts and bolts at people like all the, I, you know, I would have assumed that it was later but one thing that a lot of people don't realize about writers is that when you're young and fresh a lot of times is still a time when you're when when you have gumption to like, I'm going to fucking do this, this, you know, and I don't have like a million things competing for my attention. So sometimes those slow burns can happen early. Well, also though, yes, I agree. But also remember like in the band, like hundreds of songs before then, like failed. Yeah, you were an accomplished writer 
of music. Or just, or just yeah. in, you know what I mean? Because we've even been using the power chord reference, which I really like, by the way, analogy. And But it's like, there was, it's not like one day I was like, I'm going to write a book. And then like, you know, I mean, I had been trying for a decade and blah, blah, blah. So when God, and Goblin was rewritten severely before it came out. So yeah, so it wasn't exactly, you know, there were some things when I was looking through the edition for Del Rey where I was like, oh man, I should change this. And oh God, Josh. But I was like, no, no, let, just let it be what it was. Let it right. be what it was. Let's move on. Like this is Goblin. It feels right. Does it sing to you? It's like, it'd be like you saying, or you and me saying like, man, I want to go overdub this guitar on this song you record. That's, that, do, do an overdub on the next song you do. Let, let's leave this song how it was. Well, it, there are some times where bands go back and re-record classics and make it better, but it's rare. Um, yeah. You know, usually they just, you know, like it sounds slower. It sounds less energetic <laughs> yeah. or, or whatever all the time. I'm just as a metal guy, like, I think Testament's the only band that I know of that's gone back and re-recorded their early material and made it better. And like, cause usually most people like just, they make it slower and, you know, and a lot of times they've tuned down for, for, for playing live and all that. But anyways, yeah. Yeah. And, and they get used to playing it in the tuned down way. And then it just, mm -hmm. but so I, I like that, you know, um, uh, John Shirley uh, and I have had this discussion with him. I've had this discussion with him many times because a lot of his 80s science fiction novels, he wants to update the politics in it. And I'm always like, no, no, leave the Soviet Union in it. <laughs> you know? like, oh, no, definitely. Just just leave. Yeah, I'm of that mind, too. In a general yeah, yeah. way, I can yeah. see making certain changes or if you had a real lightning bolt moment or something like that, like, oh man, that last sentence should be this. And that would mean everything meant that like, yeah, go for it. But in a general sense, that's what it was. Yeah. And then I think, you know, like when the stand, like when King went back and restored all those parts of the stand, you had this situation where like he forgot that, you know, in the original version, he had Stu going to war and then he had changed it that he had never left his hometown. And, and, and you, you get these things where I'm a firm believer that the edited version of the stand is better, but, um, and that sometimes it's better to just not mess with things and, and leave, yeah. leave them I mean, with. Especially, especially if you're prolific, you know, if it was the one thing you had done in your life, I could understand retooling and this, and just like uh, leaves of grass, he's constantly adding and this and that. I, okay, yeah. cool. But, but if, you, if you've written like, you know, 30 novels or whatever, it's like, it's okay, that, that's Goblin. Let's, let's, let's do a return to Goblin. And if you want to change, if you want to add things there, let's do that. Let's do it there. Yeah, exactly. All right, Josh. Um, uh, unless anything else about the wraparound and the, um, that, because uh, no. I, I do think that that's, you know, I, that's a tough one. Um, I did a wraparound for my last short story collection um, ish where I just made the first story and the last story thematically connected. And, but I didn't, I didn't do a wraparound per se. I just like made those stories take place on the same night. There's ways to do that, that can can distract from the book and what i thought was really good is that it just really did add to the book it just it really gave it um and i thought and it's funny that you mentioned tales from the dark side because now now that's in my head but i think it gave it that um like sit down by the campfire or by the 
you know, and I'm going to tell you this tale about this, this town. And, and, and I think the wraparound made that work. So I think we've given everybody some, some really good details on Goblin. Um, and hopefully uh, Ghoul in the Cape uh, will be the next one that we sit down to talk about. But oh, man. Uh, I'd love to. Wow. I really, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because I, you know, halfway through this, I, 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 you know, I was already like thinking of my questions and like the things that I wanted to do with the process. I just, uh, um, I, I felt like this book was, it's hard for me to believe that, that this was so early in your career, but, um, but I think it speaks volumes to your gift as a storyteller. Um, and I can't wait to read more. So, uh, Josh, is there anything else you want to leave people with about Goblin? Because we are kind of still in spoilers. Like, any last um, little thoughts? Just, uh, number one, thanks for saying what you just said. And number two, this conversation, you know, I've been, I've been, as I said it before, I've been considering it, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to go back. I'm going to go back. It's not going to be called a return to Goblin. <laughs> well, maybe. But, maybe. But, 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 but whatever that is, I'm... I feel like this conversation's uh, reminding me of some certain like like um, uh, landmark or, or, or what do you call them signposts that that build the mood for this place. And so, thank you for this talk. Yeah, no, and I, I appreciate it. And I think um, I think writers will get a lot out of um, you know understanding the. I just I love to have the nuts and bolts conversations. I think it's really good for people. Like we live in an age now where. God, I would have killed for something like this when, when, when I was, you know, young starting out writers to, to, uh, to open up the hood and, and, and talk about these works. So I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. And, um, awesome. Yeah. And uh, it, for anyone who's made it this far, if you haven't read Mallory, um, go back and read Mallory and listen to my conversation with Josh. I believe it was episode 14. Um, I had a killer back to back with you and Stephen Graham Jones talking to only good Indian. Um, but, uh, and that's where we nerded out on basketball. So you'll, um, uh, we nerded out on playing basketball and we nerded out on our favorite players. So like, uh, it's kind of fun, but, um, but we'll, we'll talk again soon. And if you're ever in San Diego, I when comic cons back, um, uh, hit me up and maybe we'll go shoot hoops. So, uh, dude, that sounds phenomenal. All right. Thank you so much for this. Yep. And, and thank you for everyone that is watching or listening. Thank you.